This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Thursday, January the 26th, 2023. Welcome to Now, now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. It's uh, never a great omen when you stumble over the first line of the show that involves your name and the title of the show. We'll see if we can do better from here. Coming up on the show today, Dr. Phil Hooper from the Canadian Ophthalmological Society discusses Glaucoma Awareness Month. See, I was already worried about syllables there, so that's why I messed up my own name. I'd been practicing ophthalmological too much. Pharmacists in Ontario can now prescribe treatments for some common ailments. Pharmacist Patty Tails... And Stephen Scott will explore the issues that new technology poses to the white cane. Can new technology ever really replace the white cane? That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. But let's begin with the top story of the day. And as it's been so many times over the course of the last few months... Let's begin in the world of healthcare. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will meet with all the premiers on February 7th to discuss healthcare funding. Trudeau laid out the myriad of concerns facing the healthcare system. People are needing better access to family doctors. People are needing uh, more reliable emergency room service. People are needing uh, better access and quicker uh, to mental health support. So many people are struggling, particularly since the pandemic. We need to get rid of the backlogs. There's so many things we need to do, and we, we will be doing them together. The Prime Minister says the federal government will be presenting a plan to the premiers. It'll be an opportunity to share with them our plans to support the health care systems across the country, hear their priorities for investment, and start working together concretely to ensure that we're transparent about how this money is being invested so Canadians can have the confidence that they'll get the high-quality health care they deserve for years to come. Manitoba Premier Heather Stevenson is encouraged that a date has been set. Um, we as premiers have been asking for this meeting for quite some time now, so I think it's a good step in the right direction. Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs Dominique Leblanc says if a deal is struck, funding increases can be included in this year's budget. Our hope very much is after the meeting on the 7th of February uh, to quickly conclude these agreements that we think will be in the interest of improving the public health care system for the long term. Uh, and then everybody is in the budget process. That is the politics of healthcare. What about some of the granular detail in the way it's impacting service providers? Quebec's Order of Nurses is rejecting a recommendation to push back the date of its next licensing exam amid an ongoing investigation into the last sitting's 55% failure rate. Karen Rebo has more. The commissioner who oversees access to Quebec's professional orders had suggested a delay as his probe continues into why only 45% of nursing candidates passed the last exam in September. The order says it will go ahead with its next licensing exam on March 27th as scheduled, but has agreed to Andre Garapi's suggestion of allowing students who had failed for a third and normally final time to retake the test. The commissioner said nursing students have largely blamed what they see as flaws in the exam. The Order of Nurses has suggested student preparation could have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Let's switch gears from healthcare to the economy. The Bank of Canada raised its key interest rate to 4.5%. You knew that. It's the highest rate that it's been since 2007. Governor Tiff Macklem says the economy continues to outpace the bank's projections. But economic growth and employment in the second half of 2022 were stronger than we expected. And so excess demand in the economy has persisted, putting continued upward pressure on prices. Simply put, our overheated economy is not as cool, is not cooling, has not cooled as much as we expected. Macklem reiterated just how much demand for goods and services persists in the economy. Demand is running ahead of supply. We need to give supply a chance to catch up. That's a big part of 
reducing the inflationary pressures, and that's a big part of restoring price stability. But I, I don't want to pretend that uh, it's painless. It's not painless. We've raised interest rates forcefully. Uh, that is impacting many Canadians. TD Director of Economics James Orlando reflected on how inflation numbers are already moving in the right direction. Everything is in place for inflation to continue to decelerate. So if we just have the account, economy have right now, we're going to get inflation moving um, uh, downwards. Lowestrate.ca mortgage broker Leah Zlatkin puts the rate hike in perspective in terms of borrowing money. This is the eighth rate hike um, in the last year approximately. This is the biggest amount of hikes in terms of percentage that we've seen since the 80s. So for a lot of homeowners, this is a very stressful time. And it's stressful for people who own homes, and it's also stressful for people who may be looking to get into the market. One major Canadian bank is showing a five-year fixed-rate mortgage at 6.49%, with their variable rate at 6.7%. And finally, Via Rail executives are set to address a federal committee today about delays that plagued travellers over the holidays, including this guy. Lori Paris files this primer. The railway has said the derailment of a CN Rail freight train caused further delays to trains on its east-west corridor between Quebec City and Windsor, Ontario, that saw some passengers stranded on trains for upwards of 20 hours. Via Rail apologized for not being more forthcoming with its customers about the situation or providing timely updates on the delays. Its executives are appearing at the committee as opposition members of Parliament argue it's time to extend the country's air passenger protection regulations to cover travel by train. Via Rail's appearance follows earlier testimony by leaders at Air Canada, WestJet and Sunwing who face questions about the hundreds of flights they cancelled or delayed over the holidays. Lori Paris, The Canadian Press. From the news to the daily polls, at Accessible Media is where you vote on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. is where you vote on Facebook. On Wednesday, you were asked, will delays or backlogs for government services impact whether or not you seek them out? 53% of you said yes, and 47% of you said no. Today's daily poll, at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. We'll be talking to Blaine Deutscher in Saskatchewan about this uh, later on in the hour, about a winter festival going on in Regina. I'm asking you, what makes for a good outdoor winter festival? Is it food? Is it entertainment? Is it activities? Is it the venue? Of course, every city has their own way of celebrating the winter. We were talking to Derek Lackey in Winnipeg yesterday about the Festival des Voyageurs, which is a great festival in the Winnipeg neck of the woods. Of course, Winterlude is on deck for the good folks in Ottawa. Quebec City has their own incredible Fête de Neige in the winter. So there's all kinds of cool stuff going on across the country. So what makes for a good one? Food's obviously an easy one. Good outdoor concerts, entertainment, especially if it's free, that goes a long way. Activities like sledding or skating could be a good time. But what about the venue? In some cases, the venue stretches all across the area. It's hard to get to. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a bad thing. In the case of Winterlude in Ottawa, there's some stuff in Gatineau. There's some stuff in Ottawa. A lot of things are done on the canal itself, which is fun because it stretches across a large swath of the city. I don't know. I, I actually do not know where I land on this, but I'm, I'm inclined to say entertainment. Bring me a concert that I want to see, and that'll make me pretty happy come the winter. Alex Smythe, what about you? Ian, this one, Dave, is outdoor winter, winter festival. And so because of that rationale, I think I have to go with activities, something that's really going to sell the winter festival vibe. Every single festival, or at least most of the ones I can think of, they're going to have food. They're going to have entertainment of some kind. But what separates you apart in the wintertime is those activities and how you really play up the celebration of winter. You've named a bunch of great ones. And every single time I think of all the great activities that you can do outside. So for me, that's really kind of the point that makes it a great outdoor winter festival is when you include the elements of winter, when you actually embrace being out in the cold and in the snow and and really kind of diving head first into that. Yeah, you can have great uh, great food. You can have great hot drinks that you serve or, or festive uh, uh, limited time offerings. But 
you know it's it's when you actually get into it and you're you're playing up in the snow element that's that's really what makes a good winter festival yeah build a good snowman carve a nice yeah. sculpture there was one event at winterlude where they had dudes with chainsaws carving blocks of ice so there was a lot of sensory going on there as they were doing it maybe a little loud for my taste but then when they were finished you could go like grab the ice sculptures i was like this is awesome yeah something that can offer a little bit more of as you say that winter flair can uh, make a big difference or in the case of quebec city when they open up ice Bars. That's really fun, where everything in the bar is made of ice, uh, including the stools and the glassware. Uh, a good time, and uh, makes for a very frosty drink on a, on, a, on a cold day. So that goes a long way as well. Alex, thank you for your thoughts on this one. We'll catch up with you in the not-too-distant future. You'll be reading the weather report, letting us know whether or not the weather is amenable to some winter festivals. And spoiler alert, through a lot of the country, it sure is. But in the meantime, you can vote at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc., on Facebook. Let's go back to Alex, who has the national weather update. Here is your AMI national weather report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where it's a mix of sun and clouds and becoming cloudy as the day goes on. There's also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour during the day. And there is a wind warning in effect as winds over 100 kilometers per hour is expected tonight. The high is zero, feeling like minus 13. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it is snow turning to rain this morning and up to 50 millimeters of rain is expected. There's also wind gusts up to 100 kilometers per hour. The high is 10 and as you can expect, a wind and rainfall warning are in effect in the area. To Montreal, Quebec, there's up to five centimeters of snow set to fall today. And there's also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour the high is minus 3, feeling like minus 13, and a snowfall warning is still in place as snow continues to fall. Then up in Ottawa, Ontario, it's again up to 5 centimeters of snow set to fall as well. It's ending in the afternoon and then becoming cloudy. The high is minus 4, feeling like minus 1, and Ottawa also has that snowfall warning still in place. Here in Toronto, Ontario, excuse me, it's light snow in the morning and then it will be a chance for more snow in the afternoon. There are wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is minus one and the wind chill makes it feel like minus 10. To Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy with a high of minus 11, feeling like minus 27. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it is cloudy with snow falling as the day goes on and up to two centimeters is expected. There's also wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. High is minus eight, feeling like minus 23. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, there's snow this morning, then possible rain in the afternoon. There's up to two centimeters of snow set to fall and wind gusts up to 80 kilometers per hour. The high is plus three and that wind chill makes it feel like minus nine. In Calgary, Alberta, it's actually quite a pleasant day. It's a mix of sun and clouds, wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and the high is four degrees. The Edmonton, Alberta, it's fairly similar. It's a mix of sun and clouds as well. Wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour, and the high is seven degrees. Over to Yellowknife Northwest Territories, where there's light snow in the morning, and then it's clearing up in the afternoon, but it's very cold at minus 18 with it being the high, and that wind chill makes it feel like minus 34. To Vancouver, BC, where it's rain in the forecast today, and the high is 5 degrees. And finally, to Victoria, BC, it is cloudy with a chance of rain, the high slightly warmer at 7 degrees. And that's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, it's Glaucoma Awareness Month. Dr. Phil Hooper from the Canadian Ophthalmological Society will discuss the importance of this Awareness Month. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. January is Glaucoma Awareness Month. The disease affects nearly 800,000 Canadians. To chat more about this month and the disease is Dr. Phil Hooper. Dr. Hooper is the president of the Canadian Ophthalmological Society. Dr. Hooper, thank you for making time to be with us today. We're grateful. 
Well, thank you for having me. I think it's an important topic and I, I'm glad to talk about it. A recent study by the Canadian Ophthalmological Society found that less than half of Canadians are familiar with glaucoma. Why do you think so many people are uninformed about the disease? I think a few reasons. One is that it affects people largely in their later years of life. And so if you do a broad survey through all aspects of uh, the population, people are less aware. The other is that the disease um, doesn't get a lot of, uh, uh, of press. There isn't a lot out there on it. It is a disease that's typically managed with drops at home. There um, is certainly surgery required to treat more severe aspects of the disease, but it's not uh, a disease that has a lot of excitement about it that people uh, um, hear about in, in the news and otherwise. The COS recently launched a campaign that advocates for a vision health desk at the Public Health Agency of Canada. What role would a health desk like that play in increasing awareness and maybe being a resource for Canadians? I think all of the above. I think the uh, uh, advantage of having a vision health desk is it, it elevates the importance of vision uh, to the quality of life of Canadians uh, at the federal level. And it allows the uh, organization to be um, to identify areas uh, that need more research and understanding, and as you say, develop public awareness campaigns to increase awareness uh, of the need for eye examinations and the uh, need for new and better treatments. I wholeheartedly agree that vision health needs to be on the front burner. If a disease like glaucoma became more uh, more commonly known about, what kind of opportunity would that present for learning about uh, prevention or treatments for people in the early stages of the disease? I think the fundamental factor about glaucoma is at this point in time, our ability to treat the disease is principally to prevent or delay progression. Um, the vision that is lost from the disease cannot be recovered by treatment. And so uh, anything we can do to get people treated earlier in the course of disease will mean that their quality of life is much higher throughout the course of the disease. What are the warning signs that someone should look out for that they may be experiencing in the early stages of glaucoma? Typically, there are no warning signs in the early stages of the disease. If a sophisticated vision field test is done, which is uh, uh, part of regular eye examinations as people get older, that will detect early stages of vision field loss. Um, other thing is, is genetics. If there are other people in the family that have had glaucoma, it certainly increases your risk. Uh, and as I mentioned, aging. Coming back to the vision health desk, what needs to be done to achieve something like this, to get either Health Canada on board or, or provincial and, and federal governments on board? Well, we've been working with a number of partners, the CNIB Foundation Fighting Blindness, the Canadian Optometric Association, uh, to try to have a concerted effort to get this over the top. We've had a, a real push forward uh, when a private member's bill uh, was tabled by Judy Scrow in the fall. Uh, basically looking to develop a vision health strategy in Canada. And we feel, as does Judy, that this can be best accomplished by establishing the vision health desk. Uh, we're working with uh, um, um, MPs, uh, engaging them across the country. Uh, we're engaging the uh, um, bu parliamentary budget office. Uh, we have submitted a, a budget brief, uh, which hopefully will uh, help see that funding moves forward, uh, uh, and most of this will come together in the early spring. What do you believe the barriers are currently for people accessing better vision health care? After knowledge, I think the next thing is uh, um, recognizing the need for examination and getting an eye examination. There are um, portions of our population that live in more remote areas or are perhaps somewhat marginalized by language, uh, um, by uh, uh, their living circumstance that don't have the same access to eye examinations as, uh, as the larger population.
I have to confess that even as a legally blind person, I can be a little bit lackadaisical about getting my eyes checked on the regular. I kind of work under this theory of, ah, born legally blind, stay in legally blind, which I know is a really terrible uh, personal habit to get into. What do Canadians more broadly, or even more specifically myself, uh, keep it, have, to, have to keep in mind about their vision health? Like anything else, uh your eyes hopefully will last a lifetime, but they may not. And uh, there are a number of diseases, glaucoma being one of them, that are more common as we get older. And so I think we have to be aware that uh, early prevention of disease is always the best way in, in, in eye health. And we need to make sure that we're on top of changes and not uh, ignore them. It's uh, It's always amazing to me as a practitioner how many people come in and say, well, I've had this going on for six months to a year, but hasn't really stopped me from doing things, so I've ignored it. And yet, uh, uh, over that period of time, the disease has been there and it's been progressing. Circling back as, as a parting thought here to a vision health desk, a national vision health desk uh, through, the, through Health Canada or the Public Health Agency of Canada, is there um, a template or a precedent to pull from? Are there other jurisdictions that are already utilizing a service like this? I think in Canada, the biggest uh, template is the uh, uh, the dental health desk, which has really been instrumental in moving the uh, uh, national dental care program forward. And uh, uh, we'll hopefully see that become uh, regularized and 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 functional as time goes on in the u.s there is a, a branch of the uh, national institutes of health totally devoted to uh, um, eye health and eye diseases called the national eye institute and it's been very effective that country has really moved forward tremendously in terms of research and developments in eye disease and a large part of that I think is due to having that focus within the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Hooper, thank you for the work that you and your colleagues do, and thank you for making time to speak with me this morning. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Phil Hooper, president of the Canadian Ophthalmological Society, speaking to you from London, Ontario. Coming up next, we keep the healthcare conversation going. Pharmacists in Ontario can now prescribe treatments for some common ailments. Pharmacist Patty Van Vikitis will break down some of the details. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index gave back a little in trading yesterday, due in large part to losses in energy and industrials like CN and CP Rail. Toronto's TSX index lost 29 points to close at 20,599. New York's Dow Jones average added just 9 points and the NASDAQ gave back 20. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index lost 32 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.61 cents US. As the Bank of Canada takes a breather from raising interest rates so it can assess the economic effects of higher borrowing costs. Economists will be paying close attention to how the labour market is affected. The central bank raised its key rate by a quarter point and said it was taking a conditional pause to see if inflation continues to be tamed. As businesses and consumers pull back on spending, economists expect unemployment to rise from near historical lows. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. As of this month, pharmacists in Ontario can assess, recommend, and prescribe treatments for 13 common ailments. To walk you through a few of the details of this new program is Patty Van Vakitis. Patty is a pharmacist for PharmaSave in Waterloo, Ontario. Patty, thank you for making time to be with us on the show today. We're grateful. Thank you for having me. So this was announced late last year and came into effect earlier this year. As you talk to a few of your colleagues, what's been the early reaction as uh, this policy has unfolded? Well, uh, we knew it was coming and it was something that was exciting and much needed. Um, pharmacists have been triaging patients uh, with various healthcare needs 
for ages and often we've known for a lot of these minor ailments what the correct treatment is and how to help our patients but we just felt like our hands were tied and and sometimes delaying treatment for even just minor things like cold sores or UTIs just left patients uncomfortable and struggling to get into their already busy physicians. So this really just helps us get patients on the right path uh, for several minor ailments to help them be more comfortable and takes a little bit of pressure off the healthcare system. So most of my colleagues are pretty excited about it. Um, and we think it's a good thing for this province and for patients across Ontario. Yeah, some of the early uptake numbers are really impressive, showing more than uh, half the pharmacists in the province in the first couple of weeks were, uh, were interested in being a part of it, which is uh, fantastic. And for so many people, um, the pharmacist ends up being one of the frontline people they deal with in the healthcare system. So where does this fit into a very logical rolling out of the continuum of care? Um, it's It really is making it that much more important to have a good relationship with your pharmacist. And we've always uh, said to patients, it's good to keep your health records and your prescriptions and all that kind of stuff in one place, because it is part of the whole continuity of care. And of course, when we prescribe for minor ailments, we are contacting your primary care physician, um, unless you don't have one, in which case we retain the records so that they know that you've been seen. Um, we continue to follow up with you in the days after your visit to make sure that you're doing better. So continuity of care is definitely Definitely what this program is about. It's to get patients the care that they need in a timely fashion and to ensure that that is communicated to their primary care physician. And if any follow-up is required, that it will happen quite seamlessly. Um, and this electronic health care record um, will follow the patient from us to their, to their doctor and uh, can be retained across the province if any other healthcare professional requires access to it. Is there anything a patient should keep in mind in terms of a step they should follow or a process they should follow before they go see their local pharmacist? We do recommend that you call ahead because the one perception that we noticed in the first coming weeks is that patients have gotten used to their pharmacists being able to be easy access, quick access, and that we can do everything super fast most of the time in terms of a quick question and so forth. But this is an actual assessment, a medical assessment, and you can expect from your pharmacy the same type of questions and background information required as you would if you went to your doctor's office. So we do need about 15 to 20 minutes at minimum to do the assessment. And that means fitting things into our workflow. And as you know, that pharmacists are also vaccinating mm -hmm. COVID vaccines, flu vaccines. We're checking your prescriptions. We're doing a lot of things. And so we can fit people in in a very timely fashion, but we can't uh, easily have people dropping in on our doorstep on a moment's notice without expecting to wait anyway, right? So yeah. um, to make it easier for the patient, easier for us, it's best to call ahead. And the great thing about this program is, is if you cannot come into the pharmacy, either you're not feeling well or you just can't, the visit can be done virtually or over the phone. Mm. And uh, many pharmacies also offer prescription delivery. So if it is safe to do so, and it's an assessment that can be done over the phone, uh, the pharmacist is definitely able to accommodate that as well. So that is really the fantastic thing about this program is that it allows for the assessment to be done in person or remotely. Combining a lot of best practices there. I, 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 hope, I hope this isn't getting too granular and you can tell me if it is, but of the 13 ailments, which are the ones that are available for an online evaluation or, or is there still a little bit of wiggle room there? Um, I mean, technically speaking, all of them could be, but during an assessment, if certain either red flags come up or ambiguities come up where something simply is a gray area that you feel can't be assessed over the phone, then you have to just make a clinical decision um, and let the patient know, you know, why it can't be done. It's hard to think of every circumstance off the top of my head, mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. you know, certain things can easily be described or especially if it's something that the patient has experienced before and they know the symptoms and they've had the issue in the past, you can deal with most things with a certain degree of confidence, right? And all minor ailments are uh, self-limiting conditions that usually the treatment does not mask something more serious or underlying. And the whole questioning that we go through would, would kind of bring any of those issues out. So we feel confident that the process can be done safely, uh, either remotely or in person, just by making sure that all the, uh, you know, 
T's are crossed and I's are dotted, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. You mentioned the the fact that currently pharmacists are doing a lot of work in terms of flu vaccines, COVID vaccines, as well as just the everyday business of, of, of being a pharmacist, right? There's a lot of work going in there. Every time I walk into the pharmacy uh, across the street from the studio, I mean, the folks behind the desk are working their tails off. Uh, you mentioned the possibility of uh, calling, calling ahead or calling ahead to maybe schedule an appointment to make sure people can be fit in timely. Um, what are some other yeah. things people People should be mindful of that we're actually making sure to uh, be kind and generous and grateful to you as much as you are offering kindness and gratitude and great service to us. Um, it helps to be prepared to come to your visit. If uh, it's not your regular pharmacy, for example, make sure that you have a list of your medications handy. Bring your health card with you to the visit. Um, you know, that sort of, uh, you know, know the name of your health, your physician, your primary care physician, their phone number, especially, like I said, if you're going to a pharmacy that maybe you haven't been to before. So come prepared for your visit and uh, just be a little bit patient. Um, like I said, our turnaround time, I feel for these assessments is actually much quicker than a lot of the wait times people see in walk-in clinics um, and doctor's offices. So it, overall, it is going to be a speedier process. And as I said, for things that come up like cold sores or eye infections or uh, uncomplicated urinary tract infections where sometimes uh, patients were waiting several days to be seen and were either very uncomfortable or missed the boat for optimal treatment. This, um, you know, potentially waiting a couple of hours to come in or to have the phone assessment done is really a drop in the ocean. Nothing yeah. to worry about. It's a great uh, program and pharmacists are trained to treat these minor ailments and everybody has completed um, uh, a mandatory orientation so that we all know what our ethical, uh, legal and professional obligations are to both our patients and to their primary care physicians to ensure the whole seamless care happens. Other than the cost of any potential prescribed medication, is there any upfront cost to a patient who wants to utilize uh, this method? Absolutely not. Your health care, uh, sorry, your health card, just as it is uh, your key to health care in Ontario at your doctor's office, is the same at the pharmacy. Uh, this isn't. Um, OHIP covered visit. And as you mentioned, the prescription part of it, if a prescription is required, uh, is just like any other uh, prescription issued by your doctor. And we would fill it in the same way. If you have insurance, it's covered by your insurance and, you know, whatever mechanism you normally use to pay for your medications, that won't change. Generally, in, in my life, I, I mentioned that oftentimes the pharmacist ends up being one of uh, the, the, the frontline people you meet in your healthcare continuum, maybe one of the people you develop uh, the closest relationship with in your healthcare continuum. Why, why do you think that is? Why is it that people seem to have such positive relationships with their pharmacists? Um, it's the frequency of the visit. Obviously, uh, you know, people may see their doctor every six months or a year. The visits tend to be very quick. They're very busy. It, sometimes in the store, patients can linger a little bit longer. Uh, we can tease out other issues that are going on. Um, it's just a more personal uh you know, environment, I guess. And over time, the relationship does definitely build. Um, and that's something we're proud of as community pharmacists. I love that when my patients walk through the door, I know them all by name pretty much at this point. And that's the best way to conduct healthcare because when patients feel comfortable with their healthcare providers, they're willing to share uh, important information that um, can really help us help them better. And uh, that trust is essential to making sure that your recommendations are taken up by a patient, because if they trust that you have their best interests at heart, um, that you know their families, that you care for them, that you would treat them the way you would treat your own, um, then they will take on those recommendations and that results in better health care and better outcomes. Patty, there's a lot of people who are really excited about this program. Thank you for taking a bit of time for us this morning to uh, tell us more about it. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. That is Patty Van Vakitis. Patty's a pharmacist for PharmaSave in Waterloo, Ontario. Coming up next, reporter Blaine Deutscher will tell you everything about this year's Frost Regina Winter Festival in Saskatchewan. But first, online payment apps are under some scrutiny. Mike Dubusky explains in Tech Trends. And 
Americans use and rely on these payment apps. Delicia Reynolds Hand is the Director of Financial Fairness at Consumer Reports. She says their latest report examined the Cash App, Apple Cash, Venmo, and Zelle. So we looked at how safe the apps are to use, how they collect and handle user data, and how transparent they are in their practices. On transparency, she says all the apps could do better, especially when it comes to underlining how and if scam victims can get their money back. Every company had something that they could improve because information was hard to find. Um, and then when you found it, in some instances, it was hard to read. Meanwhile, users of these apps are advised to be on the lookout. Take the time you need to confirm a phone number, email address, um, obtain a QR code if you can. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Tabuski, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's winter festival season. You heard about the Festival du Voyageur in Winnipeg yesterday from community reporter Derek Lackey. I was talking about Winterlude earlier in the show. Fête de Neige is taking place in Quebec a little bit later. There's lots going on on the winter festival front, which is actually prompting the daily poll question today, which you can find at Accessible Media on Twitter or at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. We're asking you what makes an outdoor festival winter festival so special is it the food is it the venue is it entertainment is it activities so don't forget you can vote on that poll anytime you want to or get involved in the comment section to shout out your local winter festival Blaine Deitcher community reporter in Regina is about to shout out the Frost Regina Festival as something to do in that neck of the woods hey good morning Blaine Good morning, Dave. How's everything with you guys over there? Not too shabby, not too shabby. We got a little dose of a winter festival in Toronto last night, but Torontonians are soft. They don't know what real winter is. Blaine, (laughs) uh, how does this particular festival embrace a typical prairie winter, what I would call a real winter? Well, I mean, living in the prairies, it's like nothing growing up, nothing really happened in the winter. And, uh, I like their tagline. It says where winter comes to life because summertime, there's always stuff going on. Wintertime, it kind of dies down and you're like, well, what do we do? So yeah, where winter comes to life. Um, and this year it's the third to the 12th of February. And uh, it's all over the city. We have three locations around Regina. You have the downtown area. The warehouse district, which is literally like a few blocks up the road, and then Wascana Lake uh, in front of the legislative building has a bunch of stuff. And you can do everything from uh, skating, dog sled rides, horse wagon rides, and indigenous stories. There's just a few things that I pulled off their website. So, um, yeah, it's it's a fun event. Unfortunately, it does cost. You got to buy tickets. Um, you can buy a pass, which from what I read on their website gets you any day of the third to the 12th, um, to go in. Um, if you want to go find out more, you can visit frostregina.com. And if you want to look about tickets, you can visit, uh, shoppass.com forward slash frost dash yqr and uh check that out and it was fairly inexpensive uh to get a day pass for for whichever day you choose to go versus just buying tickets for uh one of the days and yeah so um it sounds like a lot of fun lots of cool things going on skating at the Downtown has a skating rink. Wascana Lake in front of the legislator just put up their uh, outdoor skating rink, which stays all year. Um, and then, yeah, the dog dog sleds and horse wagon rides. There's so much to do. So much to do. Blaine, that's the what the where what and the where and the when, right? Those are those are the facts. Those are just the facts. But why yeah. is it that or how is it that an event like this ends up engaging the community? Why is an event like this important to the community? I think it just gets people out. And uh, you know, if you are 
needing to take buses. There's like locations everywhere um, near transit. So you can get out and, and it, it just gets you out of the house when it's cold and, and you've got six, seven months of winter. It, it kind of gets depressing. So this gets you out of the house, gets you to see some friends and family uh, and you can have a little fun with your friends and, and do some stuff. And it just gets people together as a, as a community. So that's the outdoors, frostregina.com to learn more, frostregina.com to uh, learn more about that particular event, like Blaine told you. But maybe you prefer the indoor stuff. It is uh, minus 18, minus 20, minus 25 out there at some of those festivals. And no matter how many layers you wear, that might not be enough. So for a local who prefers the indoors, there's a theater production you've come across called The Unforgettables. What is this play about? So it says uh, it says that this play is about World War uh, World War One America. Uh, decadence is everywhere. Many women work as dial painters, craft artisan watch uh, watches by hand at one of the most popular corporations of the 1920s. Yet even the most Luminous element cast a dark shadow following the death of their friends. Five women re- relay against their employers dangerous practices in, a, an, in an unforgettable legal battle that has shaped the course of history. So that one, that's in Saskatoon. Um February 3rd to the 5th. Uh, it's called, like you said, The Unforgettables. It's by Aaron Profi and produced by Fight or Flight Theater and Wonder City Collective. So, uh, yeah, it's it sounds actually quite interesting. Um, and it's, uh, it's a theater that it kind of embraces everybody um, and wants everyone to have a equal access to performances if it's if it's being in a play or watching the play um they want everyone to be involved equally yeah community theater is oftentimes one of the great bastions of inclusion inclusion it's one of the places where you see communities coming together whether it be to participate or to be just simply taking in content so that one as you mentioned february 3rd to 5th and february 9th to 12th at the play refinery in saskatoon and uh, we'll make sure we share some of these details up on the blog lots of links and times and names of theaters for uh, you to learn about ami.ca slash now ami.ca slash now hey blaine have a great day and stay warm out there you as well we're getting snow over here so uh, yes so are we but it's different uh blaine <laughs> thanks for this buddy thank you so much that is blaine deutscher community reporter in regina saskatchewan remember you can find more information on our blog ami.ca slash now ami.ca slash now let's wrap up the hour with a couple of peculiar news stories i don't know if i'd full-blown call this outright peculiar but i also want to make sure you understand this is not a scare tactic i'm not trying to fear monger with you but it is from the world of science An asteroid will move past Earth tonight. Mark Remillard tells you all about it. It's about the size of a delivery truck and was only discovered on Saturday. But officials at NASA say there is no risk of impact as the rock whips past Earth on Thursday night. The asteroid will zoom 2,200 miles above the southern tip of South America before continuing on. Scientists say even if it was on a collision course with Earth, most of it would burn up in the atmosphere. The asteroid's believed to be between 11 and 28 feet across. Mark Remillard, ABC News. Not quite as big as the one that got the dinosaurs, but still a little concerning that we didn't know about it until Saturday. That's only a couple days notice to uh, get this new this new system we have of asteroid defense up and running. So a little concerned that sneaky asteroid kind of snuck in there past us, but either way, it's going to be a close call. 2,200 miles, a little close for comfort for my taste, but as uh, Mark Remillard rightfully points out from NASA, an asteroid that size wouldn't cause any kind of substantial damage. We're, we're not going to be the dinosaurs over here. But, you know, if that thing landed on your roof, 
eh, it wouldn't be fantastic. Here's another one for you, and this one's gonna prompt a bit of discussion here from me and Alex. A sleep research blog has a dream job for cheese lovers. Michelle Franzen shares details on this Gouda opportunity. If you love cheese, you could turn that passion into a cash cow or goat, depending on the source of that soft or sharp cheese. A company called Sleep Junkie says it's willing to pay a handful of what it calls dairy dreamers to test out a theory that eating cheese before bed can trigger nightmares. Each tester will be paid 1000 bucks for eating a variety of cheeses each week and recording their dreams or nightmares on their smartwatch. Applicants must also be at least 21 years old to get a shot at this cheesy job. Michelle Franzen, ABC News. My pun was better than Michelle Franzen's pun. Alex Smythe, I had never heard that cheese caused nightmares. Had you ever heard this old wives' tale? I think I'm vaguely familiar with it. I think it's like along the same lines of like, oh, you don't want any sugar uh, before you go to bed because it will cause like really out there dreams. But nothing that was like linked specifically to, okay, you eat you eat cheddar, you're, you're going to be having like, you're guaranteed nightmares. Nothing quite to that like clear line. Thinking. Don't eat cheddar like, oh, and you you'll shouldn't. sleep better. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I, I, Usually I, I'm the one bringing the puns. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm doing my best here today. Uh, Alex, it, it's, it is one of these things that I was unaware of it. However, when I hear about an opportunity like this, sign yeah. me up. If I can eat a bunch of cheese before I go to bed and get paid to do it, I mean, I do that like pro bono anyway. Yeah, well, the, this is the thing too. Sleep research blog. I. It's something about the word blog to me. It always still <laughs> seems like it's very like cheap amateurish but they're they're giving out a thousand bucks to go and eat some cheese and sleep and record yes yeah, sure like i mean i'll i'll do it happily yeah now the one thing is i the one thing i i know when you eat cheese before bed you wake up that next morning that morning breath is going to Oof. be rough Oof. Uh, i agree with you on that front totally and completely Alex, I would say that I try hard not to eat, generally speaking, before bed because the nutritionists will tell you it's bad for your digestion, it's bad for acid reflux. There's a whole bunch of reasons why you shouldn't eat right before you go to bed. It's also bad for a calorie count. You're eating those calories before you can burn them. Blah, 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 blah. Whole bunch of science behind that. Do you? But, but I'll tell you, when there have been a couple uh, uh, adult indulgences over the course of the evening, that will oftentimes get in the way of uh, best laid plans. But what about you? What's your general policy when it comes to eating around bedtime yeah so i typically try to avoid it like you dave i used to be really bad and just like stuff my face and then oh i'm tired i'm gonna sleep now uh, <laughs> but nowadays i i typically try to give myself an hour a couple hours that i'm not eating anything or not really drinking anything other than water before i go to bed just to you know make sure i'm i'm in giving my body a chance to digest anything and and that i'm not gonna uh, suffer any consequences the next day. So usually I'm, I, I have a nice big glass of water that I'll, I'll have it like, you know, maybe an hour or so before bed, drink that and then fill up another one as I go to bed. Cause I always like to have water on my, yeah. my nightstand Smart. on my table. So I always have it within arm's reach whenever I need it, whether I drink it before I go to sleep or, or after I wake up. But, uh, you know, that wasn't always the case. I, I guess this is part of, you know, getting older. You're trying to get a bit wiser, <laughs> trying to be more mindful on these things. But, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say no to having some, some cheeses next to those uh, uh, <laughs> glass of water. Uh, Alex, you opened the door to this. You opened the door to your bedroom. So I'm busting in with more questions okay, about the it. sleeping, about, about the bedtime habits of Alex Smythe. Alex, I was recently discussing with a friend who told me she was very comfortable eating crackers in bed and eating chips in bed and eating popcorn in bed and I was very much against this I ex explained to her in no uncertain terms that would not happen in my bed where do you stand on eating in bed yeah so I I do eat in bed from time to time and I'll I'll indulge in the chips or the snacks but I I try to like set it up in a way that is like I'm protecting myself. It, it's it's very dumb when when I say it out loud or explaining. But it's like, oh, ha make sure the blanket is fully covering me. So if there's any crumbs, any <laughs> chips that fall down, they'll go on the blanket so I can easily find them and pick them off. But 
you know that's never gonna actually work and I'm just lying to myself when I do actually eat in bed but uh, yeah that, that's part of the, the lies that we tell ourselves Dave it'll be fine I'll collect them all I won't roll over in the middle of the night and hear a crunch or have some <laughs> Cheetos dust or something on, on the back of my arm when I'm uh, sleeping and wake up in the morning Devoted viewers of the show know that I'm actually quite picky about where I eat. It's either at a table or over the sink like a rat. There's only two places where the eating happens for me, and it's typically at a table on a, pl on a plate or over the sink like a rat. That that's how I roll as an overall operation. So, Alex, in this case, they're saying we'll pay you to eat cheese before you go to bed. And you and I both agree that cheese is delicious, and we're not going to yeah. fight about that. If you could pick any other food that you would have to eat before bed and get paid to do it, what would it be? Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, you and I were talking probably, about the merits of like hot food or like hot food earlier yes. in the week, spicy food. I'm telling you, eating spicy food right before bed, terrible idea. Well, yeah, because your your body's going to be shocked op uh, awake, so you're not going to be able to sleep. I, I think there's a pretty easy study right there. Can you sleep after eating like atomic wings? No, <laughs> no. you can't. Uh, but I, I would say something sweet, like something, you know, whether it's, a, a chocolate or something like that and see maybe what the effects of, of chocolates are on sleep and dreams or you know better yet why don't we do some donuts so you can fill all sorts oh, of different donuts oh. with different types there we go yeah come on yeah i definitely i'm definitely onto the sweet category what about uh what happens if you eat a plate of brownies an entire plate of brownies right before you go to bed i think there could be some merit in that one too uh, alex yeah. thank you for uh, chatting a little bit about uh bedtime routines at least ones that we can get paid for that intersect with the old uh, dietary needs what do you think up there in the viewer vortex what's a food that you would willingly eat and get paid to eat right before you go to bed Feedback at AMI.ca. Feedback at AMI.ca is the email address. You can also give a phone call, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. If you go that route, please do give us permission to play your voicemail on the air, and that's exactly what we'll do. You can also track down the show on social media, at Accessible Media on Twitter and TikTok, at Accessible Media at Twitter and TikTok. If you go the TikTok route, leave us a TikTok video and tell us about your uh, nightly bedtime eating routines and if you have a take on me banning crackers and chips and really all forms of food from the bedroom. Not George Costanza over here trying to mix my pleasures. And of course, the other form of social media where you can find us is at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook and Instagram. So the meta properties, Facebook and Instagram is at Accessible Media Inc. The Twitter and TikTok is at Accessible Media. Lots of ways to get in touch with the show. And the other thing I forgot to mention is if you do send an email, feel free to go beyond writing. You can also send us a, a selfie video to feedback at AMI.ca as well. So lots of ways for you to get in touch with the show. And don't worry, I'm not limiting you to your food takes. You can comment on anything we talk about on the show, including sports, health, and economy, all the hot takes that I give you on that front as well. Coming up after the break, I've got the regional news update. Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat with a deep look at a couple different Paralympic, well, Parasport events going on, and a little Toronto Raptors talk. We haven't been giving basketball the bounce it deserves the last couple of weeks, so we'll dive into the Raptors, who had a nice win in Sacramento last night. All that and more coming your way on Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.